0: There we go. Okay, so um, last time we were talking and um, we, we had just, well, we kind of got caught up on questions, in fact, but we were, we're still talking about election, right? And we were talking about specifically um, predestination and where the Christian fits into the concept of predestination and election, and we talked about the fact that election has nothing to do with being elected unto salvation, and predestination has nothing to do with being predestined to be saved, um, as Reformed theology would say, and we went through the verses and we recognized that that is not the case, that um, we, we recognize that our election is unto and, and our predestination is unto what? What's the key word that we, that we use when we talk about our election or our predestination? Does anyone remember the keyword? <laughs> yes. Very good, Aletheia. Purpose, right? We are elect unto a purpose. And that is the church that when we enter into the body of Christ by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and we accept salvation, then we become one of the elect unto a purpose. And that purpose is that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so we recognize our election. We recognize and we walked through all of the different times where predestination comes up and we, we recognize that there isn't one time where the word predestination is used in the Bible, where it's used in the concept of getting saved. And the closest one we had was the one in, in Romans, if you recall, um, and we were able to talk through why that was not the case. And then we got onto a little bit of a side discussion on volition. Right and, and um, volition as it played into Israel and Jesus Christ's death and what, what might have happened. And my wife and I were talking about that a little bit more and, and uh, had a good conversation about that. I'm not going to go there this evening. But what we do need to get into now is, as we think about this, the Holy Spirit's role in our election. So remember where this is coming from. Um, um, Rogers family, this is, this is a diagram. So I don't know if you've ever diagrammed in English. Um, If that's something you've had the pleasure of doing, but um, I I diagram in the Greek and um, it's, it's great because in doing so we're also teaching our children that this stuff does matter because diagrams are very important diagrams help us understand how words relate to each other in a sentence. And if you don't know how they relate to each other, then you're not going to understand. And now as we get uh, in in the English language, you know, you've grown up with this language, you can fairly implicitly understand how most words relate to each other in a sentence. But it's not that easy when you go to language number two or language number three. And so we diagram this and remember, and so what you see here is in the black, um, the, this is the translation of the Greek words. you got all the Greek there, and then this is how, they, how pastor feels they function. Syntax is a little bit interpretive, so it doesn't have to be this, but that's how I believe they function. Um, and uh, I mentioned that Peter, I mean, he's writing this, and literally we, we see participles, but through verse 5, we still have not come to one verb. Through verse five, there's still not one verb in the entire. He's writing in participles and implied verbs. It's just uh, he, he's a terrible person to try to try to translate. Uh, Peter was he, um, he. You can tell he was a fisherman. So he's writing here, and Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, he's writing to the sojourners who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this is what we parked on, the fact that it's the will of God, the foreknowledge of God, the election of God uh, that that God has willed. So we're elect according to, with measure or reference to, God's will. And we're going to see this come up again in verses 3 through 5. Peter's going to use the same formula to introduce the next point. And then he says here, in sanctification of the Spirit. So now this is what we're going to look at. How does the Holy Spirit relate to this election? Because if you look at our diagram here, notice that each one of these, these uh, prepositions is connected to elect. It is modifying el- the election. And this is why we diagram, so that we know what's modifying what. So, um, this is God the uh, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's the Father's role in our election. He foreknew it. He willed it. Elect in sanctification of the Spirit. This is going to be the Holy Spirit's role in our election. And then unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's Christ's role in our election. All of the Trinity engaged together in the election that is choosing the church to become conformed to the image of Christ that we enter into the moment we accept Jesus as our Savior. So let's talk about it just a little bit. So this uh, elect, and um, where's, when was the last time we had a translation? It's been a little while now. Let me go ahead and turn to it so that I can read this here. So, um, verse 2 says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And our King James says, Through sanctification of the Spirit. So, uh, I will agree with that. By means of or through. The idea here is means. uh, The functioning as means. Elect in or by means of the sanctification of the Spirit. So here's our, our Greek word, sanctification. Can anyone read me that, that Greek word? Audrey. Good, Hagiasmo. I don't have a a uh, uh, accent mark there. I'm not sure where it's supposed to be. Probably it's probably a circumflex over the omega. That, or uh, uh, yeah, the omega there. And then how about in context here? Um, or the lexical form, excuse me. Bell. Good, hagiasmas. That's right. And um, so that's our word. And it, it's, it's a word that by definition means consecration, purification, or holiness. And it's connected to that word holy or the word set apart. It's the same root. And we could dig through all that. We're not going to. But this word specifically occurs only ten times in the entire New Testament. And five times it's translated holiness. Now, look at these times. Romans 6.19. I love this verse. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. So righteousness unto holiness. Righteousness heading towards consecration, heading towards sanctification, heading towards holiness. Romans 6.22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Now notice the contrast here. The contrast between holiness and everlasting life. And notice as well that these are all speaking of those who are already believers, right? Who are growing or moving in unto holiness. So this is not a process of becoming saved, nor is it speaking of the moment of salvation. This is speaking of what we typically term as sanctification. And we draw that line between salvation, which is by grace through faith alone, right? And then sanctification, which is our growth in our understanding of Jesus Christ and becoming more conformed to the image of Christ until the day that we reap everlasting life and we receive the adoption of sons and we're redeemed. In 1 Thessalonians 4, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. There we see it again, speaking to believers. 1 Timothy 2.15, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Speaking of um, particularly the women and the women's role in family and church. Um, Hebrews twelve fourteen. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now that one's an interesting one. That one is one where it becomes a little bit more difficult to see just the sanctification aspect in there. And we have to go back and, and dig into that in order to understand the context there, which is not our purpose this evening but if you want to write down that verse and dig into it yourself a little bit, um, you could certainly do so. Five times, the other five times we see this word, it's translated sanctification. um, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Twice in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, this is the will of God, even your sanctification and specifically the sanctification of abstaining from fornication and then possessing one's vessel in sanctification and honor. And we go down the list, and what we see here is that each one is speaking of a set-apartness, a consecration, living a God-pleasing life. Well, we talked about Sunday morning as the definition of true success, right? And so that's what we're dealing with here. Also, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and then, of course, our um, context here, 1 Peter one verse 2. So sanctification of the Spirit is the idea of growing and living in personal holiness following our accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. The sanctification of the Spirit then, which is what we're talking about here, through sanctification of the Spirit is the essence of our Christian walk. It allows us to accomplish our purpose. So we are elect according to what? According to, Mason? Well, yes, but what does the text say? It's salvation is what brings us into the election. But what did the, not up there, but what did First what did Peter say? Elect according to, Sarah? The foreknowledge of God the Father or the will of God, right? And then we are elect through or by means of sanctification. Now, here's the thing. If, there's any, if we need any more proof that we're not talking about salvation in our election, which we couldn't have anyway because we've already diagrammed it and seen that that's not what it's relating to, but if we needed any more proof, the fact is this is saying that our election comes through sanctification. Well, then what is our election? Because we know that salvation doesn't come through sanctification. That doesn't make any sense. That we won't be saved unless we become good enough. That that's, contradicts everything we know about the Gospel. Everything we know about salvation, which is by grace, through faith, by believing in Jesus Christ alone. And so, because we know that, and what we recognize here is that this election is unto the purpose of being conformed to the image of Christ. It's an election ordained by God the Father, and it's through or by means of the Spirit sanctifying us. We're going to be getting there on Sunday night here pretty soon. Well, pretty soon, mid-January. Walk in the Spirit. And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, right? And the idea that Paul espouses in Galatians chapter 5 is he gives the the works of the flesh then the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that you have been elect to do. Yield to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to renew your heart and mind. Allow Him to change you from the inside out. Allow Him to conform you to the image of Christ. This is what the Spirit does. And so our election is, by, is through or according to the will of the Father, through or by means of the Holy Spirit of God. The means of the sanctification is the Holy Spirit. The means by which we are able to live and grow. Galatians 5.16, Galatians 5.25. Our election is not our election is not intrinsically to be pure. Purity positions us to fulfill our election. Our election is not inherently purity. Our election is to become conformed to the image of Christ, that we might show the world how to be conformed to the image of Christ. But purity is how we, how we do that, right? Purity is the, the means by which we reflect Christ to the world if we're not reflecting Him in purity, in separation, in sanctification, then the world looks at us and they say, well, why do I need that? They don't have anything I don't have. Why, Why do I need what they have to offer if I can just be me without having to go to church? And this is the problem when the church does not separate from the world. Evangelicalism, broad evangelicalism, Really, I've I've been asked this question on several occasions. What's the difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical? And if if we could boil down the difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical, it comes down to separation. The view on separation. The fundamentalist believes that you need to separate from the world. The evangelical believes you need to use the culture in the world to reach folks. And that is the, the biggest line of demarcation between a fundamentalist and an evangelical. Now, as you look at evangelicalism, that's a broad spectrum, and you've got people that have gone well beyond orthodoxy, right? So they're not even in the camp of the Bible anymore. But as far as those that are biblical, the difference really amounts to this. Are you going to separate from the world? And as we look at the election that is being taught here, it's about purity. It's about being conformed to the image of Christ. It's about this distinction. We say it this way at our church, that you don't always have to be different from the world around you, but you should always be distinct. You don't always have to be different from the culture that's around you, but you should always be distinct. You don't have to look or act in such a way that you're just walking down the road and people go, oh, yeah, there's one of those. But when they interact with you and they hear the way you talk and they see how you treat them and how you treat others, and they see what you do and what you don't do, there should be a clear distinction between the wickedness of culture and the purity of Christ. So the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is this, sanctification through conviction, through intercession, but it's all conforming us to the image of Christ. Christ. Are there any thoughts on that or questions? Okay, wow. We made it through like a whole section. That's, that's amazing. All right, so, uh, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit or by means of, right, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of God of Jesus who is the Christ. And so this is the result. This is the direction. This is the purpose. And we've talked about this a little bit. The Holy Spirit is the means. The, the God the Father is the will. Jesus Christ is the... And we see this all throughout the, the Scriptures. He is the enactor. Alright? So, so, in creation, the, the, the Bible says that God the Father... Look down at creation, and the Spirit of God moved upon the deep, and God said, let there be light. So the Father was the will, the Holy Spirit was the empowerment, and the Word of God, who we learn from John chapter 1, is Jesus Christ, was the enactor, the doer of creation so that we can believe what Colossians says when Colossians says that by Christ the worlds were framed, and by Christ the world is Sustained. So he sustains it. He created it. Christ is the creator. And we know that because he's God, right? And God was active in the creative process. So as we think about that and recognize that, we see the same thing here in our spiritual life that in this idea of election, as in the idea of salvation, in each of these biblical concepts where you see God actively interacting with man or with creation, you see all three members, all three persons of the Trinity actively engaged. God the Father willing it, God the Son doing it, and God the Holy Spirit empowering it. It's the same thing with election. God wills our election, the Spirit empowers our election, and Christ enables our election through His blood. So we see unto here, accusative of purpose or of result. Jesus Christ in the Christian's election. So we are elect unto or for the purpose of obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's start with obedience here. Can anyone read me um, the, the word obedience? Well. Ada? ADA. Um, Good. Hupakain. Get that accent in the right spot, right? And how about our lexical form here? Um, You know, Harrison, you don't actually have it, do you? You're still working on English, aren't you? Okay, you, you keep going though. Yeah, you, you keep working. Audrey, did you have it? Hupakea. Pretty close. Someone want to clean up the ending for her? Sophia? Hupakai. right. So basically just dropping um, the new there at the end. Hupakai versus Hupakoain. Um, and the definition of this word means obedience, compliance, submission found 15 times in the New Testament. I'm not going to actually read through all of these times, um, but I'll, I'll uh, run through them quickly. Romans 1, verse 5. Receiving grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Um, this is speaking of Jesus Christ and His obedience, making many righteous. Um, in this case, obey is a different word, but related. Uh, obedience unto righteousness is what we have been saved to do. Obedience has been, the obedience of the Roman church has been spread abroad or called abroad. You see it um, in all of those cakes is very similar idea there. Twice obedient, and a very similar idea as obedient children, 1 Peter 1.14. And then obey once and obeying. So the same idea throughout. And the idea of this word reflects. Just as much what Christ has done in purchasing for us salvation as what we do in the name of God. So the idea is this. Jesus Christ obeyed God unto death. Right? He went to the cross and He died for our sins. And then we, when we are placed into Christ, now have the privilege of doing the same. Of reflecting that same obedience. And within this context, it seems more likely that Christ's obedience is the idea that Peter is getting across, um, that we have been made made obedient to God in Christ. So the idea is that we have been elect unto obedience in Christ, because what we're going to see next is sprinkling in Christ, and we'll we'll kind of formulate what all this is saying once once we get this second word here. So can somebody read me this? This uh, Greek word. Audrey? Say it again. Frontisman. Very good. And how about our lexical form? Very good. Okay, and then I'm also including rantidzo, which is um, the verb form, though that's not what we find here. So um, five times in the New Testament, we see these two words. This one's a noun. This one is a verb. So sprinkled would be our verb. And that's twice. When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. Does anybody remember the context of what's going on here in Hebrews 9? What is, what is uh, the, the writer of Hebrews speaking of there? Obviously, it's it's in Exodus is when this happens. But um, why, why did he sprinkle the book and all the people? Which would have been the law? Anyone know? This was actually the moment of entering into the Mosaic Covenant. It, Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it upon the people and he sprinkled it upon the law. And this was the entering in, the physical entering in of the covenant between... Mos- uh, between the people and God entering into the Mosaic Covenant. And so as we see this idea of the sprinkling, it is an idea of a cleansing, a sanctifying, a ratifying. And then Hebrews ten twenty one and 22, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from what? An evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So those are the two instances of sprinkled. And then we have, um, I say it's five times, but I only list four. I wonder which one I missed. Um, two at least for sprinkling, and this would be a noun form. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than Abel. So three of the, the verses that we've seen here are in Hebrews, speaking of the sprinkling, and that makes sense to us because Hebrews is a book written to the Jews trying to show them the superiority of Christ to the law and of Christ to angels. And so we, we see this connection uh, to the law and that's where we talk about the sprinkling. And then we see it in our context in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. So the context of sprinkling focuses not upon the blood atonement, that would be more than just a sprinkling, Right? That is the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood is the atonement by which we are saved. The sprinkling of blood focuses on this, again, this idea of sanctification. Moses sprinkling the blood is the ratification of the Mosaic covenant. The yearly sprinkling on the mercy seat, right? That's what, that's what the, the high priest would do every year. They'd kill the, the lamb and then he'd go in and he'd sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat every year. So this sprinkling idea, which harkens back to the law, and remember, who's wh- which audi- What's the audience that Peter is writing to in First Peter? Someone knows. I know someone knows. Mason, do you know? Strangers. strangers, and what what um what's the implication of them strangers? In what way? Sophia? No, nope, not in this case. They're not. Uh, Sometimes strangers can speak of unbelievers, but in this case, that was not it. The word that we actually used, um, it's strangers in the King James, but we kind of glossed it as sojourners, right? Sojourners. These were Jews, believing Jews, who were living outside of Israel, living outside of Judea, living in the broader Roman Empire. And so he's speaking to believers, but he's also speaking specifically to Jews. Jews of the dispersion. Jews that were scattered. And so, because they were Jews who have been saved, they would have very much understood this idea of sprinkling. You wouldn't see Paul using that word unless unless he, uh, I mean, I believe he wrote Hebrews, so you do see him using it when he's speaking to the Jewish audience. But you don't see Paul using it in any of his... Word, any, any of his epistles to the Gentile world because they wouldn't understand that. They wouldn't understand the significance of the sprinkling as you think of the sprinkling of Moses uh, on the people, the sprinkling of the high priest on the mercy seat. But the Jew would understand that and they would understand this temporary or this, this cleansing idea, but not the full atonement. That would be the shedding of blood, not the sprinkling of blood, right? Okay, and we see this reality in our lives in 1 John 1.9, right? If we confess our sins, He, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the two ways that we attain unto this election that is empowered by the Spirit of God and that is willed by the Father is through the obedience of Christ and fellowship with Christ. So when we obey that which Christ, we follow Christ's example, and then when we fall out of Christ's example by sin, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And remember, 1 John is written to believers. This is not a salvation verse. This is a fellowship verse. Summary. We're going to get through these two verses. So the Father wills our elected purpose of properly representing Him to the world and being conformed to the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers our elected purpose through sanctifying us from sin and unto good works. The Son, Jesus Christ, enables that sanctification through His blood which serves as the result of our election through confession of sin and fellowship with God and also the purpose of our election. Through loving obedience to God that compelled his sacrifice, so we obey God, and we walk in fellowship with him and this is the purpose i mean this is this is the Christian life is our verses next? yes, so as we look at the King James here, blessed uh, on on the far left side, blessed be God and the fa- and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to oh nope that's the next phrase let's go back I'm sorry if you're getting. I strain from that. On the left side there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so this is what he's talking about. Those that are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace. So that's that's the, the sum total of the idea there is that we are those are living in the power of God, all three persons of the Trinity enacting our daily walk with the Lord through God willing it, through the Spirit empowering it, and through Christ enabling it or um, making it happen. Okay. All the way back down to the bottom here again. Are there any questions on on that or thoughts on that what i thought was really neat about peter is really neat about peter is that as i mentioned before yeah, he he's so he's so thorough in this he's not just stating it he's he's hitting every angle he's hitting the father's role he's hitting the spirit's role he's hitting the 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 son's role And in doing so, since he's writing to a group of Jews, he's giving this well-rounded picture of how the second person of the Trinity fits into this process of of enacting the will of God. And this would have been, of course, very important for the Jewish believers to understand the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's important for us all, which is why it's inspired. Uh, Now, we're going to go on to the second section and um, I'm going to try not to finish late this evening, but, um, and we'll read it in just a moment. Just the caveat for the Rogers' sake, since they weren't here before. I give four different translations here. I give the King James, the English Standard, the Greek, Textus Receptus, and then my own. Um, as we look at the, the um, text issue, and of course our website is fairly clear on this, and, and I've preached on it many times, but we recognize that the King James Version of the Bible is a very good translation and our loyalty, however, rests upon the Greek Textus Receptus more than it does upon the actual English translation, the King James. The Greek Textus Receptus, uh, we believe, is the preserved Word of God, preserved by the church through the ages and then made indelible through the printing press and there have been some revisions and such, but they all follow the trail of... Preservation all the way back to the New Testament Church. The other translations, English translations of the Bible, do not follow the Greek textus receptus. The only one that does is the New King James, and that even allows for some doubts. Uh, the King James is without a doubt the best translation we we have in the English language that reflects the appropriate preserved Greek text. All of the other translations are out of the critical Greek text which has thousands upon thousands of changes. And those changes are based upon humanistic methods of higher textual criticism. And so we do not have confidence in that text. We believe that that text has been tainted by humanism. And so we are loyal to the King James Version, you might say by default, because it is the translation, the the best translation that comes from the Greek Textus Receptus. That being said... It is a fantastic translation. But it's not, and we do not believe at Legacy Baptist Church that it in and of itself is inspired. And we do not believe that it is, it is a perfect translation. We have seen areas where there can be clarity. And so what I have done is uh, typically, the English Standard Translation is a translation of the wrong Greek text, but they do a good job at translating the wrong Greek text. And so where it does match with the Greek Textus Receptus, it can sometimes give us some clarity as to the intent of the text. Where there is discrepancy, we go with the Greek Textus Receptus every time. There, we'll, we'll, we may find in Peter, I'm sure we'll find in Peter, complete phrases that are completely cut out of the English Standard and cut out of the critical text. If they're in there in the Greek textus receptus, we trust that the Lord wanted them in there. And thus, it'll be reflected in the King James as well. And we find nine times out of ten that when, when there's a discrepancy between the King James and, the, and uh, a newer translation, the King James does a really good job of, of reflecting it properly. And then my translation, I give a very rough personal more literal translation, one that's not meant to be read, one that's just meant to get the point across. And I do that as well. So, that's what you're reading there. Please don't uh, take from this that we have any loyalty to um, the humanistic roots of modern translations or anything of the sort. It's just for comparison purposes. So, our our verses 3 through 5 is what we're looking at now. And the scriptures tell us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now this is, a, a again, a, a very unique phrase we have the the sentence here, and then the sentence, the God and Father is blessed, and then He is the one who, and then we have this substantive participle where everything is modified. So again, if you know your English grammar, then you're following me a little bit. If you don't, just um, bear with the geek talk or the grammar talk. Um, so we'll start just briefly with the blessing on the Lord and then we'll talk about what He has done for us. We'll um, we'll start with this word blessed. Alright? So, let's have somebody read us the word here. Sophia? Lugitas, very good. And how about the lexical? Oh, that's the same, never mind. Uh, it's found in this lexical form. Now, as, I sa- as we say that word, ulogetas, and we recognize that it means blessed, does that sound familiar to an English word that might have a similar meaning? Ulogetas? Start working through that mind dictionary of yours. Sarah? I thought you m- m- mouthed it. Eulogy. Eulogy. Right? A eulogy. What is a eulogy? Can someone tell me what a eulogy is? Where do eulogies happen? Nelson? Mm -hmm. It's the words you say typically at a funeral. That's the way way we do it in, in American culture. We call it a eulogy. And you give that at the funeral. And what's the purpose of the eulogy? To honor, to honor the the deceased, to honor the person who has passed on, a praise, a blessing upon them. Now, it's obviously not conferring any sort of spiritual blessing. It's on unto man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Once you're done, you're done. But that's the idea that you are. It, it is set aside as a means by which to praise the life of the person who has died. A eulogy. This is where we get that word, eulogetos, eulogy. And this is an adjective here. We find it eight times in the New Testament, so not all that often. And this is interesting. I'd like us to pick up on this. Mark 14, 61. But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Who who is the Blessed here? How is he using that word? He is talking about God. He's calling God the blessed, right? Art thou the Christ, the son of the blessed. That would be God. By the way, my wife and I go through this. It's blessed versus blessed. You say blessed when it's in adjectival form. When it's being used as as a substantive, you'd say blessed in the form where it's being used to modify so there actually is method to the madness there. And it's that way anytime. Cursed versus cursed. Blessed versus blessed. In one sense, it's being used as kind of a substantive and the other one is being used in a modifier way. And so that would be the difference in pronunciation. Both are correct, but only in the certain context. All right? Um, Luke one sixty-eight: Blessed. I don't know why there's a question mark there. I don't think there should be one. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel and um, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Uh, Romans 1.25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, Romans 9.5, whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all God blessed. Blessed? Hmm, I don't know which one would be there. God blessed. God blessed forever i believe depends on i'd have to diagram it to know which one's how it's functioning uh second corinthians 1 3 blessed be god even the father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and the god of all comfort and we go through and what you find here is that in each one of these cases that this word blessed is referring to in its adjectival form god Every single time it's used to describe God. God is blessed. He is the blessed. He is blessed. It's always refer- re- uh, referring to God. Outside of this form, not shown, it's still almost used exclusively of God, uh, but some other times of spiritual blessings. And again, I'm sorry, I must have had something else that I was thinking of writing there, but I didn't. So this is that word blessed and it's always used of God. And that, that's something worth meditating on here. That in this particular form, it's always used of God. It's not used of man. Even of our blessings in Christ, it's used to describe the one who is God. And we're going to stop there for this evening, right on the hour. Good for me. And uh, we'll pick up there next week.